beautifully read. Well, good morning, everybody. Something that um, Christians all think about from time to time is the question of how exactly we are related to the Jews with respect to two faith systems based upon God's promises to Abraham. And actually, if you think about it, it's, it's not an insignificant question. Uh, are they also saved people? And perhaps we are saved by way of God's covenant through Jesus, but they are saved. In other words, perhaps they continue to be God's people by way of the pre-existing covenant through Moses. And hey, if that's, cho- if that's true, is that a choice we all have? I mean, can you get to choose how you belong to God? Can, can you... Can you choose to belong to God through Jesus or through Moses? Well, there is a theological movement called dispensationalism, particularly popular in the United States of America. Dispensationalism sees the Jewish people as continuing to be God's chosen people, still the people of God, just under a different dispensation of grace to us. And where such thought flourishes, it tends to make Christians particularly zealous to bless and protect the Jews in general and the modern state of Israel in particular. Now, don't get me wrong. All Christians should be zealous to bless everyone, including the Jews, especially the Jews. But dispensationalism makes Christians curiously ready to help out. And a number of political commentators see dispensationalist theology as a major influence on American foreign policy, especially with respect to aid to Israel. So dispensationalist theology actually is a major shaper of the world in which we live. I understand that there is a cattle breeder in Nebraska, USA, who is attempting to bring back into existence the extinct red heifer cattle breed because the red heifer is required by the law of Moses for a particular type of sacrifice, but it's a cattle breed that no longer exists. He wants to breed them back into existence in order to export them to Israel so that the temple in Jerusalem might be reconstructed so that Jesus might come again and all things be fulfilled. So we can see that the question, how are the Christian and Jewish faith systems related under God, is not an insignificant question. Well, the parables that we will look at this morning and next week shed light on this question, for they deal with the question of how Jesus relates to the nation of Israel as it existed 20 centuries ago. And so to this morning's text, which is Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. If you would like to follow along, it's on page 802 of the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. Um, Jesus is is teaching in in the temple courts. Uh, The Passover feast at which Jesus will be crucified is three days away. The elite of the religious establishment of Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they come to him with a question. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? 
Now, of, of course, a couple of things about the way that rabbis uh, talk amongst themselves. Firstly, um, uh, you answer a question with a question, and Jesus is going to do that. Secondly, you make a statement in the form of a question, and when you ask a question, you're not asking a question, you're making a statement. And what is the statement that these guys are making? Well, the statement is, it's a public declaration, and it goes something along the lines of this. We did not give you authority to teach or preach here in the temple precincts, and if we didn't, nobody did. We have been ordained with the authority of Moses. We occupy his office, both the priestly office of Aaron and the teaching office of Moses and the prophets. So who the heck are you? That's the statement they're making. They've come to publicly discredit Jesus by asking Well, Jesus answers challenge with challenge. He doesn't answer, um, he doesn't answer their question at all, um, which is, of course, by way of strategy, totally brilliant. I often think that um, for us as preachers, we are so quick to point out that Jesus is the Son of God that we are slow to point out that he's a genius. Because he is. Um, these men have come to trap Jesus, but they're going to end up trapped. These men have come to judge Jesus, but they're going to end up judged. And these men have come to condemn Jesus, and they're going to end up condemning themselves. Well, Jesus is uh, Christ's um, counter-challenge is, again, if you'll pardon me for pointing out the blindingly obvious, it is brilliant. His question is this. Sure, I'll tell you where my authorization comes from, just as quick as you tell me where John the Baptist's authorization came from. And as we've heard, they find themselves backed into a corner and forced into saying, we don't know the answer to that question. To which Jesus responds, neither will you know the answer to your own question. And before they can blink, Jesus takes them into a parable. A story that doesn't stand alone. The parable is bookended by a question. Front and back, it's the same question. What do you think? Which of the two sons did what his father wanted? And the leadership, they give the only answer they can give. Let's have a look at the parable. A man had two sons. Literally, they are micros, um, um, uh, um, little ones. Um, they're children, either male or female. We don't know if these are sons or daughters. It's not known. They're kids, and they're kids who are asked to do chores, to help out, specifically gardening work in the vineyard. Uh, this isn't adult labor out in the fields, far from home. This is child-appropriate helping hand stuff in the fruit orchard outside the back door. Chores. We hear about... Um, a rebellious one first who says, I will not. And, uh, of course, this kind of bold, arrogant disobedience would have been deeply shocking to a Middle Eastern audience. Um, Christ's audience would assume that the next line involved this child immediately receiving a very severe beating. But there are no words about punishment. Um, all we get is... Later, he changed his mind and went. No information is given as to why he changed his mind. The, check, the second child uh, answered, I will, sir, which is precisely what a child would be expected to answer, polite, respectful, obedient. 
But this is deceivious. He doesn't know. He's deceitful. And again, this kind of disrespect towards the patriarch of the family would have been considered very shocking. This child looks polite, respectful, and obedient, but actually is a deceiver and a rebel. The appearance of goodness only makes this child's actual rebelliousness all the more repulsive and offensive to Middle Eastern ears. Jesus asks his audience to judge the two kids, but he doesn't ask which of them was the better kid. Both of them behaved in a way that would have been deeply shocking to any Middle Eastern audience. Neither of them is without guilt. Both of them are deserving punishment, although two quite different transgressions. Jesus doesn't ask his audience to judge their behavior or speculate on their punishments. He simply asks which of them did what their father wanted. And it's not a trick question. It's not difficult to answer. The first kid did. But how does that relate to the question of John's authorization or of Jesus' authorization? Well, Jesus tells us. Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. The the religious elite of Jerusalem, uh, just to point out the obvious once again, uh, believed themselves to be serving God. Uh, They would have believed themselves to be working in God's vineyard in order that their ministry might bear much good fruit for God. They're they're doing the God stuff full time. I mean, after all, they're they're teaching the Bible, they're leading the people in prayer, they're administering justice, and they're officiating with respect to the temple sacrifices, all according to the law of Moses. But Jesus is telling them, you're not serving God. You are not doing what God wants you to be doing. I don't know what the heck you are doing, but it's not serving God. And again, just to point out the obvious, that would have been deeply shocking to these religious leaders. Now what's interesting is that in order to establish they're not serving God, Jesus doesn't go to the law of Moses and the prophets. He doesn't doesn't show them the difference between the law of Moses and their actions. He doesn't point out their hypocrisy, their greed, their deficiencies. Actually, he's going to do that later, a few chapters down the track in Matthew's Gospel, but he doesn't do that here. No. In order to show them that they're not serving God, the evidence he presents is that they did not believe John. And that implies that John the Baptist trumps Moses. He's a higher authority than Moses. And again, just to point out the blindingly obvious, that would have been deep. Problems with my mic today? Okay. Should we just talk amongst ourselves?
The Lord be with you. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't present them with, with their discrepancy from, from the law of Moses. He doesn't say, hey, you guys are hypocrites. He's going to do that later, actually. In order to prove that, he's, that they're not serving God, he shows them they're not believing John the Baptist. And that implies that John the Baptist is a higher authority than Moses. And again, that would have been deeply shocking to these religious leaders. Because again, there are some... You just don't get higher than Moses. Every ministry since Moses has been derivative. It's been based on his. And as we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at a text from the book of Numbers, what God had to say about Moses was, when it comes to the prophets, they hear from me, but God spoke to me, speaks to me face to face. Moses is a higher authority than the prophets. And now Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is a higher authority than Moses? Well, yes, Jesus said about John the Baptist, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John is more important than anyone who's come before him. Why so important? Well, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, they both foresaw and described John's ministry. And we read it this morning from Isaiah 40. He would be a herald, a messenger, a prophet like Elijah, but one who would prepare the way for God's arrival. He would prepare the people for seeing the glory of the Lord, the Lord come to earth. So his ministry, is not, his ministry is not connected with announcing the arrival of the Messiah, although that's not an unrelated idea. His ministry is connected with the arrival of God. And that's how John the Baptist saw his role. John, a man greater than Moses, described his ministry in these terms. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John, John the Baptist always understood his role to be to point to the one who was coming after him, Jesus. And of course, in medieval, John the Baptist is always depicted as doing this. Not that. Or is it that? <laughs> he's always pointing to Jesus. And in one doing that. Because he's pointing to the Son of God. That was John's message. And, and so let's think about those tax collectors and prostitutes. According to the law of Moses, there was no way that such people, however sorry they might be for, the, for their past lives and wanting to be forgiven, there was no way for their sins to be cancelled. They were, to use the language of the religious professionals of the day, they were sinners in the sense that they were permanently cut off from the grace of God. But now, on the contrary, no, now, according to Jesus, many such are actually exactly the opposite. Not permanently cut off from the grace of God, but rather these tax collectors and prostitutes are the true insiders entering the kingdom of God. 
and by way of application from the parable, doing exactly what God wants them to be doing, serving God. Which is believing in Jesus. The, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to trap, judge, and condemn Jesus. They were soon trapped, unable to make any meaningful reply to Christ's first question about John's authorization. They soon condemned themselves, which is precisely what they did when they answered Jesus' question, which of the two did what his father wanted? And they were very soon judged. Jesus says to them, even after you saw the tax collectors and prostitutes believing John the Baptist's message, you did not repent and believe him. So as we consider this parable for ourselves today, what can we learn from it? Well, here's my first point. Um, Firstly, it's good for us to understand the way of righteousness that John the Baptist preached. What was the way of righteousness? Well, the way to be right with God is to believe in the one that God sent, Jesus of Nazareth. What should we believe about him? Well, fundamentally, if we're going to believe the evidence of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're going to believe that Jesus is God with us, the Son of God. What we're going to do is we're going to believe what God has to say about himself. That's what we're going to do. And on that basis, we're going to build our lives on Christ's word. We're going to look to Jesus to save us, and we're going to put our faith in him. That's the way of righteousness. Because Jesus died for us on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve, we can be forgiven. All of us, actually, for everything and for anything. That's my first point, the way of righteousness. Trust Jesus. My second point follows on directly. If if serving God equals trusting Jesus, then there's no serving of God except through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. God has purposes. God has a plan and a purpose for every single human being, each and every one of us. But those plans and those purposes require each and every human being to be in Christ, to be believers in Jesus. That's not to suggest that God can't use the labors, endeavors, and activity of non-Christians, and it's not to suggest that such works by non-Christians don't help build the world that God is desiring. But it is a measure of the sovereignty and power of God that he uses the endeavors of non-Christians. The obedience that God seeks first and foremost from every single human being is belief in his Son. The Bible puts it this way when it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what this means is that it is impossible to please God if you don't believe God about God. What God is is wanting from us is that we simply believe what he has to say about himself. And that it is impossible to please God if we don't believe what the Father has to say about the Son, nor what the Son has to say about the Father. No matter what you're doing with your life. 
And as a logical outworking of that, the person who rejects God's message about Jesus actually rejects God's plan and purpose for their own life. My third uh, point, likewise, follows on from that. Um, The way of righteousness to which John the Baptist pointed, faith in Jesus Christ, renders the covenant through Moses obsolete by way of replacing the symbol with the thing symbolized. In other words, all of the good things promised under Moses are fulfilled even more so in the new covenant by the blood of Christ. So then, as we see so clearly in Christ's encounter with the chief priests and elders of Israel on that day, it is actually not the case that you can belong to God either by way of Moses or by way of Jesus. The only Israel God recognizes as his own is Israel in Christ. Israel in Christ, that global fellowship of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, God's Son, who believe what God has to say about himself. And so, of course, while I might sound elitist and exclusive... This isn't a matter of, of being elitist and exclusive. This is a matter of the glory and honor of God. That as human beings, we should render to God the simple courtesy of believing what he has to say about himself. Believing what he has to say about himself through Jesus, through John the Baptist, through the prophets of old, and through Moses himself, that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lord be with you. we think about and respond to what Stephen said, um, let's give thanks for God's amazing grace which allows us to come to him. So do stand and join us.
Dear Lord, we, we'd like to thank you for the opportunity of getting together, for being a fellowship here at St. Barnabas Leaderville. We thank you for Stephen, for his faithfulness in preaching your word. Uh, we pray that you continue to guide him and protect him. And Lord, help us to respond uh, to that teaching, to your will to our lives. Uh, may be, uh, make us um, faithful uh, servants of your word here in this place at St. Barnabas. May we be sought uh, locally and uh, in our community. Lord, we also pray for the church here in Perth. Uh, we pray that uh, it might be a church of influence, that I might guide um, this state to do things that uh, other places don't do, that I serve justice, love, compassion, and uh, true to your word. Uh, we pray for the larger church in, in Australia. Lord, um, guide them, help us to maintain our faithfulness uh, and your, to your will, uh, to our lives. And Lord, we pray that at the church uh, around the world, the Christian church, not only the Anglican church, that um, we may be a light uh, to others, to other communities and, and to the nations around, Lord. Um, help us um, be a, a beacon that help us people see uh, your love uh, and your compassion and, and your work through all of us. So Lord, um, make your presence felt in our midst uh, help us to be a true example uh, of uh, what it is to be a servant uh, to you, Lord, to, to belong to your house. In Jesus' name, amen. Our next song is, is really a prayer of dedication. So if you'd like to stay seated, seated um, to sing this, then do. If you'd like to stand, do. Um, it's up to you. But please join in. Thank you. 